Hello and welcome to the EGV Travel Podcast. I'm Joe O'Connor, I'm a freelance travel journalist and over the past number of years I've been lucky enough to report from some of the most fascinating destinations across the world. For as long as I can remember I've always had an incessant itch to travel and I've always loved to hear the stories about far-flung destinations from the people that have been there, done that and have the passport stamped to prove it. So for this podcast series I'm going to be speaking with a number of special guests about their love of travel, the trips that have shaped their lives, and what travel might look like in a post-pandemic world. For this, the first episode, I'm joined by Tony Giles, an Englishman who has visited 125 different countries. It's the biggest challenge I can get, is getting from one place to another, more or less on my own. It's all the unknown, I suppose, the uncertainty, and I've, I suppose I've had that all my life. I've always taken risk. I get the buzz. I feel the energy. I feel the energy when I'm travelling, when I'm moving. Now, what distinguishes Tony from your average traveller is not that he has seen over half the world as a solo explorer, but he's done it completely blind and with a severe hearing impairment. It's funny, I tell you to people that the most difficult for me is being in me where I live and having to go out my door every day and walk up the same street and face the same obstacles. I know they're there, but they're still a challenge. When I'm traveling, I don't have that. Tony has previously presented the BBC travel show when he visited Jerusalem and Ethiopia. He also has two books under his belt, the latest called Seeing the World My Way, and he's currently working on his third title. When we caught up, Tony was self-isolating in his home in Devon, England. He filled me in on statue touching in Berlin, being held hostage in Kenya, absorbing in New Zealand, and going off the beaten track in Papua New Guinea. All that and much more coming up on this episode of the Itchy Feet Travel Podcast. Hope you enjoy. Okay, Tony, thanks a million for joining us on the Itchy Feet podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time. How are you keeping? Yeah, I'm good. Um, I've been back in the UK almost three weeks now. I got back from uh, Southern Africa on the 1st of April. Um, I've been travelling around um, Botswana, Zimbabwe and Zambia for about uh, three weeks. And then um, obviously the coronavirus, COVID-19 was starting to kick off in the UK and things were getting a bit more difficult in Southern Africa. Um, so yeah, so I got to come back really because I got a medical condition. So best to get my meds here and come back. So yeah, um, so I've been locked down for a couple of weeks. It's going okay. Keeping busy. I got lots to do. Lots of emails coming in, and Facebook and stuff. So keep uh, sort of communicating with my family with Zoom and stuff, Skype. Also chatting to my girlfriend who lives in Greece. So we kind of do that. Yeah, we kind of do that every night. And then. Um, just sort of getting organised, really. i got volunteers um, picking up my food for me. They come to the flat and then they call me mobile when they're here and I, I come down and get them and I stand, I stand a couple of metres back and they put it on the on the front door mat for me and then once they walk walked away, I pick it up, take it upstairs. Okay, so. Great. It sounds like you're adapting well anyway. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so... Well, look, um, I'm going to jump into the whole travel Um, and before I ask you about specific destinations something that I'm really curious about is um, 
what for for you what makes a great travel destination i mean is it a combination of things are are there certain things that stand out like such as the, the local people the weather maybe sounds of the cities or smells the food what would you say makes a great travel destination for you yeah for me it's it's a combination of things because obviously we're not seeing um i'm not going traveling for the visitors and looking at mountains or whatever um you know great views i'm going i'm going there for the food and the music when i started traveling i was in my late teens early 20s so i was going to meet different different girls from different countries and all that and yeah they got on um definitely the food the music it's, it's different combinations of things and obviously i people ask me why would a blind person want to go traveling to see a country and i say well it's not just about seeing it's about using all your senses and i use my sense of touch, my sense of smell. I use my feet when I'm walking through a market or if I'm walking up a hill or down a hill, I can detect the changes in gradient, the, the change um, tech to different things I'm walking on. And if I'm walking on gravel and I go to concrete or I go to tarmac or grass or mud, you know, I pick up these changes quicker than mm-hmm. most sighted people. You know, I, I can sense echo, I can use energy in my skin. So I use all my senses and a little bit of hearing I got to give me a, a 3D, 3D picture of, um, you know, the area I'm walking in. I go to, into a historic building or a church or a mosque or something, you know, I'll walk around it, I'll, I'll feel the carpet under my feet, I'll, I'll touch the objects like the pews and I'll run my fingers over the old wood or go and touch the walls and things like that. I'll try and find statues to feel or you know um, things like that but but ultimately it's about people without people you haven't got a country and i'm interested in their history and their culture and and one thing you said to me when we spoke the other day was when you visited dublin how the statues are all positioned very high up that you know you something you, you really like to do is to, to touch statues um yeah touch statues um find waterfalls and fountains that i can listen to i can hear um, I sometimes travel with my girlfriend who's also blind um, and she's not been exposed to the same experiences I have so I remember the, uh, we went to Berlin for the first time and I, I do research on the internet the places to find and go to places to go and that and we went into this square I think it's in uh, called um, Alexanderplatz in I think it's East Berlin and there's, um, there's a big fountain I think it's called the Four Rivers Fountain and there are these semi-naked women statues sat around the fountains so. We spent a couple of hours feeding them. Nice. It's having a great Sounds time, good. and you, and you can hear the water as well, which is you know really relaxing and musical to us. So yeah, it's things like that. And um, when we went to uh, Krakow in Poland, um, we got a couple of friends there who were um, once blind, once visually impaired, and uh, the gentleman told us about oh all these famous buildings in Krakow, like the cathedral and the castle, because it used to be the capital of Poland back in the. 16th, 17th century. So they've got little tactile models next to each building. You can go and feel them so you can actually feel what they look like. So that was amazing. And they got them in a lot of the churches and cathedrals in the UK, like St. Paul's and Westminster. So that's really cool. It really gives us a kind of a picture, or me a picture, uh, of how you, you know, explore places. And it's really interesting to hear. Can I ask you about your earliest childhood travel memory? Um, or maybe it wasn't even your childhood Tony, but 
What's what's the earliest travel memory that stands out for you? I don't really remember being born. That's probably the first travel journey. But um, I really remember the, the sort of first trip I went on abroad um, was with my parents, my mum and my stepdad. And I was almost 14. And uh, very last minute, uh, we went to a Greek island called Rhodes, Rhodos, um, in the Aegean, just off Turkey, really. And um, I remember it clearly because... Um, we got this late-minute flight, I think we flew from Cardiff, the flight was late by hours, and then we landed in, in the, the airport at three in the morning, and we had to wait for our luggage, it was on this conveyor belt, and I remember that clearly because it wouldn't stop squeaking, and we just stood there for two hours waiting for our bag, of course it was the last one to come off the carousel, it was just squeaking. So by this time, it's six o'clock in the morning, so we just like, walked out of the airport, it being Greece, very simple, walked across the road and slept in a field for two hours. And then we walked into town and we'd not booked any accommodation because it's like, we said I just found it on CFAX or whatever. And we just went to the tourist information. Oh, we're looking for a basic cheap B&B. So they found us this place in the middle of the old town, which was great because I could hear all the atmosphere, the mopeds whizzing around and people talking in this weird language I'd never heard before. And um, I could feel all the cobble streets under my feet and then, we stayed in this place, and it was this family's home. And they gave they gave us their bedroom, and they slept in the in in the downstairs. They didn't know what to make of me. This blind kid walking upstairs with me stick, yeah, you know, with Stevie Wonder glasses on, and I was so fussy. I only ate spaghetti bolognese. I wouldn't eat any Greek food for two weeks. No squid, no uh, calamari, nothing. No, just spaghetti bolognese every night. And, and the reason I remember that trip is because I don't remember an awful lot where the places we went. I remember it was really hot. It was August. And the other thing I remember was the 92 Olympics in Barcelona. And I watched, I listened to Linford Christie running 100 metres and winning the gold in Greek, which was hilarious. So that's my earliest memory of travelling. The heat, beach ball, sand. And I didn't like any of that. I didn't like the heat. <laughs> I still don't really. Okay, and I take it you've moved on in terms of your eating habits. Just a, just a little bit, yeah. I try most food now, most food. Apart from salad, I never touch salad. Tony, the trip that made you catch the bug, the travel bug, would you say there's anything that stands out? Unlike a lot of people who suddenly sort of woke up one day, got the bug as a young person and went off travelling, I... I never really got the bug that way. My travels were sort of gradual and natural. Because I went to a boarding school when I was 10, uh, along about 400 kilometres from my home. My first in- initial thing was to get home as, e- as quickly as possible to see my parents. So once I was given mobility training, I had to use a long white cane to find objects on the floor and then eventually get around my school and after school to the shops and then start using to sort of communicate with the people on the street and ask them, oh, how do I, what's this shop and how do I get to a bus stop? You know, all that. So by the sort of 14, 15, 16, I was travelling home by train. You know, it take three hours to get home. And then I all sort of left from there, really. And then I got the opportunity to go to the States when I was 16 with my school. And that was, like, I always tell people that was like an eye-opener because it was completely different. It was different accents. Everything was much bigger. I mean, I'd been to London several times, but going to Boston, the pavements were wider and I could feel the space... You know, I knew when I was walking down the pavements, I wasn't hitting any objects, which you do in England. These pavements were massive, and, you know, traffic went a different way. That was, everything was completely different. I was very young and naive. I thought Americans were awful. nice and friendly, as I discovered later. It's not okay. quite true. And since I guess it started from there, and I'm like, oh, I want more of this. And then I went back to the States, yeah, and then Great. kicked off an area. Um, 
you might have covered this when we spoke about you know what makes a great travel destination but what's the thing that excites you most about travel would you say tony oh it's traveling it's the buzz it's the biggest challenge i can get is getting from one place to another more or less on my own with my backpack and my cane and that's you don't know who you're going to meet every day that's that's you know a bus might break down or catch fire or you might meet someone and then you think, oh, I'm going to this place and they tell you, no, go, don't go there, go here. It's all the unknown, I suppose, the uncertainty and I, I suppose I've had that all my life. So I've always taken risk. I get the buzz, get the right. kick. I feel the energy. I feel the energy when I'm traveling, when I'm moving. It's funny. Well, it's funny. I say to people that the most difficult for me, for me is, 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 is being in me where I live and having to go out my door every day and walk up the same street and face the same obstacles. I know they're there, but they're mm-hmm. still a challenge. And when I'm traveling, I don't have right. that. Are you the kind of traveler that, you know, feels like returning to a place you've been is almost like it's stopping you from seeing somewhere new? Well, yeah, it's, you know, my girlfriend likes to go back again and again and see friends and stuff. I say, well, you know, make new friends. There's some places I, I go back to that have, sort of uh, special moments or good memories for me. But no, I'm I'm always quite happy. I'm looking for the next adventure, the next yeah. buzz. Great. I suppose know. staying with the kind of negatives of, of travel, is there any kind of travel nightmare you've experienced? Uh, there's one that I'm just um, sort of describing about. Um, and I'm editing my third travel book, really. I've already got two published, uh, Seeing the World My Way and Seeing the Americas My Way. And in my third book, I describe when I'm in Zambia, in Southern Africa, the first time. And uh, I go to use a, an ATM machine, a cash machine. And obviously, first I've got to find someone I can trust. And I do that by listening to people and seeing their physical reactions and verbal reactions to my disabilities. And sort of listen to people that are sort of e- easy with me or nervous. And I've learned to do that over the years because I spent my whole life having to trust people. So... I found one of the staff, I thought, okay, so they work at the hostel, so I can, I can trust them reasonably well to help me use a cash machine. So we went into town, and then I put my card in the machine, and then obviously I can feel the buttons, and there's a dot on the five, tactile dot on the five, so I know where the keypad is, but I can't read the screen, obviously. And in Africa, you can't put headphones in, and they don't talk. So, so I asked the guy, the local guy, to, oh, can you read the screen? And he was trying to read it and press the right buttons, and... By the time we'd done that, it was too late, and the cash machine had eaten me uh, debit card. Nightmare. So uh, we managed to get out of the bank next day, but of course it was damaged then. And then my good old bank in the UK just decided to um, block my card and then stop it, and then they wouldn't uh. send me a new one. <laughs> so I was basically stuck in Africa with no money, or oh, access to nightmare. no money. And, uh, and I thought, a few expletives, what, what do I do now? And uh, oh, I'm absolutely... Screwed. How'd you get out of it? Um, third world country, and uh, luckily other sort of backpackers I've met and made friends with. Like, oh, don't worry, Tony, we leave you some cash, just okay. pay it back whenever. And I eventually managed to contact my mum because obviously internet out there is not so stable and making the phone calls uh, <laughs> hilarious. So I eventually managed to contact my mum and tell her the situation. And so she was able to send me some money through Western Union, so I had um, yeah. enough money to eat. And I, said, I said, just uh, said to the uh, hostel staff, I'll pay you when I get more money. That wasn't a problem. And luckily they paid my activities I was doing for me, so I was able to continue having fun. And then um, 
my mum got the bright idea of putting my card in the diplomatic okay. pouch. And so it, it, it went to visit several countries and it arrived in Zambia two days before Christmas. At least you had an extended stay in Zambia, I suppose. That was something that came out of it, right? But it meant I sort of couldn't travel on for like, ah, several right. weeks. Okay. And, well, look, I thought you, you were know. going to tell me that the guy ran off with your card or your money or something like that. No, I, I, I have had a couple of things like that. Not my card, luckily, but I had a couple of people run off with cameras, asked them uh, to take a picture of me in the doorway of a church in Serbia, and he just walked uh, off with it. <laughs> what do I do? Yeah, <laughs> can't yeah. run after him. And look, that's something I wanted to ask you about, Tony, and having seen your your documentary on the BBC when you're in Ethiopia, you know, something that struck me is the amount of trust you have to put in, in these people, these strangers who you meet for the first time. Yeah, I think I think that's... I think that's what a lot of people who see me don't find really remarkable. A, he's a blind person wandering around the cities and countries by themselves. But yeah, the fact that I trust people, you know, and many people today, particularly in the Western world, the UK, the States, whatever, don't find it difficult to trust people. They automatically think, oh, someone's going to rob them or take advantage. And I don't. I I view people in a different way. I think of the positives. And I suppose because, I, like I say, I've been blind all my life and I've had to trust people since the age of five, six, seven, you know, ten, help me cross roads to give me right directions to the bus stop or give me right information. I suppose I've just gotten used to it and, and I've learned to sort of assess someone I can trust. You know, and, and trust trust comes on different levels, so... You've got that very simple trust where you're just asking someone to help you across the road, give you directions, and then you've got a bit more trust where you're trusting someone to help you use an ATM and maybe tell you what different notes you've got in your wallet each day because obviously when I'm using US dollars, they're all the same size, so, you know, so I, I need to ask people and then use my memory. And then you've got obviously a higher level of trust when you start talking to people about emotions and you know relationship levels so it's all those different levels i suppose and i've got no real choice well i have got a choice i could Mm. stay at home and do nothing but i'd be bored after five minutes so i just get on with it i accept i accept i'm a potentially greater risk than other people because i'm totally blind and unsevenly deaf and i accept that i'm going to be robbed occasionally i'm going to be taken advantage Mm. of occasionally but that's part of life. I'm choosing to go travelling. Yeah. So, and I, and I feel, it, to me, the majority of people around the world, and I think it's proven it's by the kindness I've had shown to me and the generosity I've had shown me, people have taken me home and fed me, given me a free rides to the bus station, mm. the train station, etc. I just think most people around the world, all they really want to do is put food on their table, a roof over their head, provide for their family and have a simple, happy life. Well, look, it, it definitely restores your faith in humanity when you see the likes of the programme you had made. And, yeah. um, you know, because so many of us become so cynical and we're so quick to, you know, not to trust. And I think and I think, I think, one of the main reasons for that is, well, the TV and the media, but I think also because people haven't travelled extensively, they've not been exposed to that levels of kindness and... Uh, and it's the people that have seemingly nothing, what, what we would, you and I would call nothing, no real luxuries or anything, that often sure. give the most. Yeah, that's definitely been my experience. They won't, they won't let you pay for a meal. They refuse to take your money. They just want to help you out of the kindness yeah. of the heart. Oh, it is. Tony, um, from your travel nightmare, I suppose, moving on to, which is a very difficult question, and I don't know if there's one place that stands out to you having visited, you know approximately 130 countries 
Yeah, I'm at 125 officially. Oh, 125. Officially, okay. I'm sure yeah. that was five. We'll, we'll come. Uh, New Zealand's my favorite country. New Zealand. Okay, yeah. yeah I was going to ask your fav. What's your favorite travel destination in, in New Zealand? Right. Okay. Tell me why. So, so New Zealand. I think there's a couple of things. I think the fact that it reminds me of the UK the most in terms. It rains a lot. It's quite cold, which is what I like. Um, the nature's similar. You know, you've got a lot of countryside, and mountains, and hills, rivers. So it reminds, yeah, you know, you, you can speak to the people. That English is reasonably you know, understandable, and um, I think it's just like the UK, but they're more friendly. There's less of them, mm-hmm. and they're so relaxed. And the first, the first time I went there, I travelled, I travelled around New Zealand for three months on a bus okay. drunk, and everywhere I went, people just helped me do bungee jump or skydive, or you know, yeah. push me off a bridge or oh, yeah, I go rafting. <laughs> Why not? And I just found their att- attitude and, and openness so. Yeah, that really appealed to my sense of adventure and nature. And then I went back three or four years ago with my girlfriend and we just did North Island. And, and I found it again, so, even when I was sober, I found people were yeah, genuine and friendly. Um, I could live in New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. Was the, the North Island or South Island, was there one that attracted you more, would you say? Um, I don't know. I mean, South Island's probably a bit more isolated um, and a bit colder. Um, Queenstown's crazy. That's why I bungee jump six yeah. times and fell out of an aeroplane and skydive and yeah. I did this oh, thing yeah. called zorbing. Yes. I don't know if you've heard of it. It put you in a big yeah. football and roll you down a hill. Right. I love that, <laughs> man. I did it again yeah. when I went back. Fair play to you. I tried to get me for girlfriend to come with me. She said, no, no, I'm not doing that. Come you're, on. You're brave, man. I, I think also that would be my favourite country I've been to and would live. But I think maybe the, the best country I travelled in was probably Papua New Guinea. Oh, well, okay. Somewhere I'd love to visit. Talk to me about that. That is extreme. In, in what ways now? And there's not much public transport and you can't just get on a bus and go from one place to another. You to, depending on where you are, you've got to fly or you've got to spend three hours in a canoe mm. bailing out water or you get in a four-by-four four and you get stuck in the mud. Wow. Tell me about the people. How did you find the people there? Uh, the people are very nice. They're very, very religious. Maybe a little bit too religious for me, but... Yeah, again, nice. Um, a lot of good food, vegetables, root vegetables chicken fish just for a real travel on the edge extreme mm-hmm. travel um, i have to got to be careful in the capital port moresby because they'll shoot each other from time to time but yeah it's, once you get out of the moresby it's a remarkable okay, well, country that was amazing my next question was have you got a hidden gem and, and actually papua new guinea kind of ticks that box anywhere else though that you would say that's a little bit off the beaten track a lot of people might not have heard of it let alone being there yeah not a country off the beaten track but a country that people might not know too much about i found it really delightful is um the republic of macedonia okay just north of greece and i found that delightful the people were very again friendly quite polite um not too big a population and Mm -hmm. lovely nature Uh, lots of lakes um waterfalls in the east part of the country I spent a couple of days in Skopje, but never outside of the capital. No, I, I went to two different places. Um, I can't remember the name. It was a town on a lake, and it's basically surrounded with churches, probably about 300 churches in this mm. small town. And uh, I, I stayed with a guy in a guest house, and then he put me in contact with a friend, and then we agreed, we agreed a price, so he walked me around for a couple of hours mm. at different churches. And, and, um, and then at the end, I went to pay him a bit more for a tip, and he said, no, no, we agreed. Mm. Uh, just, nice. Yeah. Is there a travel story that 
you know, you would say that's pretty hard to believe when you, when you look back at all your adventures from Zorbing to bungee jumping. But is there any kind of story that is pretty wild, pretty out there in your travels? Well, I was in Kenya and I'd been traveling around East Africa for about three months, two and a half, three months. And my last flight home was from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. So... I, a friend helped me go to the embassy and get a visa. Immigration said, why, why don't you fly? I said, because it's cheaper by bus. So, 28-hour bus ride, and I had to go from the capital of um, Nairobi in Kenya okay. up to the border. But I've been uh, hanging around with couchsurfing friends and listening to the news, and there's just a little civil war going on on the border of Kenya, Ethiopia. It's a little village on the Kenyan side, and they've been arguing over land and cows and stuff. And some people have been killed, so we weren't quite sure if the bus was going to go. And it delayed two times, and eventually the third day we went to the bus station. Yeah, we're going. So I'm on this bus, and I'm talking to a few people and reading me books, listening to me music. And we're sort of been up 28, 29 hours, and the guy says to me, Ethiopian guy says to me, I don't think we're going to go to the border today. I think, oh, right. I said, oh, okay. So I said, yeah, and then come nightfall, he said, well, the bus driver don't want to get shot. Oh, fair enough. So we get drops in this village, well, not even a village, and it's like a guest house, mm-hmm. some huts, basically. And um, next morning, these trucks pull up, like jeeps, open back, and he said, oh, we'll take you across the border. Oh, okay, right, good. So we all pile in. There's um, 20 Africans and me, I'm the only white person. So we went about 15 kilometres, it took four hours, through the mountains and the jungle. And then at one stage we stopped, the driver said, oh, we're, we're going now. And the uh, Ethiopian driver is going to take you and drive you across the border. OK. And bounce around in the cab. There's no seatbelts. Windows open. Very dusty. It's quite crazy. I was having a great time. So then we get across the Ethiopian border and we drive a bit more. And it takes about another two and a half hours to drive 10 kilometres. And then we get stopped. And uh, everyone has to get out. I'm all right. I'm just sat there in the cab. And we, this Ethiopian guy I've become friendly with, he said, you got to get out, Tony. He said, we've been... He said, I think we've been arrested or we've been stopped. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. So they grab me back fat and we all walk over to this place. And then we, we got to hand over our passports and we're in this big open space. So, oh. so hand over your passport, Tony. And he said, you need to write your name down. I said, what? I said, I'm blind. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> so I sort of wrote my name down as I thought sort of the letters should be. And, yeah, and then we had to sit in this compound for 24 hours. And they said, oh, you... You cross the border illegally, yada, yada, yada. Well, I had a visa for Ethiopia, so I knew I knew mm-hmm. I was doing my right. And it's uh, a lot of waffle. And, of course, this uh, guy I met and one of her, they were the only two who could speak Ethiopian. Everyone was a Kenyan. It was me. And I'm the only white person. So then, then they came back, and we had to sleep in this compound. Um, and then they came back the next morning, and they said, oh, I'll give you a pack. But you need to pay us some money to drive you to the nearest town, escort you, and all this rubbish, and pay mm-hmm. for their water, so... You were essentially held hostage in Ethiopia. And, and were you freaked out in that scenario? Or do you kind of, you, you seem to just take these situations, you know, with a shrug of the shoulders. I'm a foreigner, I'm like the UK, like they're trying to make money and they're trying to take advantage. Am I going to see me passport again? <laughs> ah. Fair play to you. Eventually it all sort of got sorted, but then it took like, it's meant to take two days to get from the border to. Addis, it took four. Wow. <laughs> Every time we on the bus, like we go like an hour, we checkpoints and the police would come on and all the bags would get opened. And what are they looking for? Oh, they're looking for terrorists from. I said, I'm a blind man, I'm no terrorist. <laughs> and of course, then I missed my flight, didn't I? Ah, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> 
Jesus. Say your mother gets a few phone calls, does she? Yeah, yeah, yeah not quite. I was managed to sort it out there in Ethiopia, but... Obviously, with this whole COVID-19 pandemic, um, we're very unsure about what the future of travel looks like. But how do you view things yourself? Or does it worry you in terms of travel? Something that obviously is a huge passion for you. Does it concern you that, you know, we might not might not for a few years or the foreseeable future be able to, you know, easily jump on a plane to somewhere in, in Asia or wherever it may be? Are these things you're thinking about right now? Not really. This, this isn't going to be like this forever. We're going to come out of it. Sure, the world might be a bit different afterwards. Um... Hopefully we've had this period, of, you know, where people are not on the on the front line and stuff. For people like you and me, are not in in harm's way really. Do you, have we got time to reflect and think about things? And maybe people who used to be on the uh, on the rat race and on the wheel, maybe they think about slowing down and maybe working differently and stuff. So I think that'd be a good opportunity for people. I think eventually the travel industry will get back up on its feet, and I think it might largely continue similar to before in. Maybe not in every respect, um, but I think, um, I certainly think at the first instance when we can go back to flying, and that will happen, uh, we will find a vaccine eventually. And even if we don't find a vaccine for one, two, three, four, five years, it, this won't stay the same because it can't. We'll go mad eventually because it's locked down for yeah. six months. Yeah. So that will change. I think I can see flights going back to Europe as mm. early as July, you know, because if you look around Europe, the Czech Republic are releasing their, Germany is releasing their, uh, their lockdown, mm. Denmark's coming out of it, so I, I, I could see flights, you know, European flights, okay. end, of, end of July beginning. What will happen immediately is they'll yeah. put the prices up. Flying as we knew it before, EasyJet, Ryanair, other companies have said, yeah, 20 quid flights to Europe, yeah. that's going to go. I'm not sure mm. that will yeah. ever come back. Cheap travel as we knew it might be gone, but but look, some positive words there, and it's good to hear. And also, oil's cheap at the moment. In fact, oil's so cheap, they're actually paying people to take away in the States. So. Yeah, that's another, um, another factor, for sure. Yeah. I think it's interesting as well, in terms of, as in Europe, what's going to happen with Brexit, you know, is that are we going to have, uh, have to fill some online thing on form, like an Esther for the mm. States every time we fly to Europe, or once mm. a year, or... So a lot of it's the unknown, which people are scared of, um... We've always lived in the unknown to some extent. So I think I think it will turn to some kind of yeah, normality. I don't worry about it. Okay. Um, and are you getting itchy feet already, would you say, a few weeks at home? Are you dying to go off to your next destination? or How do you feel? I'm okay at the moment. I've got me stairs, luckily. So like a lot of people have got gardens. I've got me stairs. So I walk up and down them and exercise once a day. And... Um, I've got a bit, you know, sort of learning to be a bit patient. I can't just go to the supermarket every time I run out of milk, so be a bit more organised and make sure I order, you know, six pints of milk or something, three pints of loaf bread, so things like that. So, and I'm planning trips, um, you know, so I've got them sort of getting them organised for when it does start up again. Um, but I'm sure a month down the track, my feet might be starting to get a bit itchy and me a bit fed up with sitting on my ass. Yeah, and so when the travel restrictions are finally lifted, Tony, is there a place either at home or abroad that you think you'll go to first? I go abroad as quickly as possible. If it sort of start, start ends of July, August, I'd probably go to Greece and just spend okay. time with my girlfriend. Not going to happen until so September. I'd probably be start looking towards doing the trip I was meant to be doing at the beginning of March, which got cancelled, and go to uh, Bangladesh, Bhutan wow. and India. Um, probably into Pakistan as well. And I, even if Corona was lit, uh, the 
um, the lockdown was lifted next week. I'd probably still plan that for October, okay. November anyway, because it's too right. far for us. Right, sounds like yeah. an amazing trip. And then f- finally, Tony, yeah. um, the place that you'd really love to tick off your bucket list. Obviously, your bucket list is the whole world. That's your goal, your ultimate goal, to visit every every country. I don't know how to spread the bucket list. Right. I don't know why. It just uh, sounds annoying <laughs> for some reason. Okay. I don't know. It's part of an immediate country. Yeah, I, I don't really know. Pakistan mm-hmm. really sounds really interesting. And also Afghanistan. That would be quite a challenge mm-hmm. to organise that. And again, it doesn't worry me. Terrorism doesn't worry me. None of that worries me. The only thing I was sort of concerned about is sort of visiting a country like Afghanistan and Pakistan is you go and stay with people because mm-hmm. I use couch surfing. You just worry about putting them in okay. danger, you know, because as, as a Westerner, I'm a, te- you know, potentially yeah. kidnap yeah. victim or so that yeah. that was my only concern. But actually visiting those visiting those countries yeah. doesn't bother me at all. And the, the, only, the only thing that worries me if I'm travelling in... in Asia and India is um, rabies um, because I can't have anything for rabies. Okay. I had a kidney tra- kidney transplant eleven years ago, so. Right. Okay. I can't I can't have live vaccines. Well, look, you're a brave man for sure, and you have an incredible story, Tony, and one that I'll certainly keep following. If anybody wants to know more about your story, your adventures, your travels, your book, you ha- you have a website, right? Yeah, I got a website called www.tonythetraveler.com. I spell traveler with two L's, the English way. And then I'm also on uh, Facebook, Tony the Traveler, and I've got a YouTube channel. And so people are putting my name, Tony Giles, G-I-L-E-S, they can find me. And my my book. My books are called Seeing the World My Way and Seeing the Americas My Way. And they're e-books and they're on every right. e-book website. Well, look, I'd certainly recommend people check out your the programs you made with BBC. They were brilliant documentaries and uh, gives you some insight into the kind of challenges you face. And again, how, how incredible, you know, I think you are anyway for, for tackling this. And Thanks very much. I think the idea now is, is it's not just travelling for me, which is what I did when I started. It was escapism and it was... Now, as I'm hoping, I'm inspiring people and showing people that disabled people aren't any different to non-disabled people. I'm blind, but that doesn't make me any less human or any less intelligent. Or you know, so hopefully, I'm inspiring people and showing them that they can live their dreams, and also showing the non-disabled world that you know, just treat as normally. You're certainly sending that message out there. Anyway, listen, Tony, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the Itchy Feet podcast. Thank you very much. You're really welcome. This episode of the Itchy Feet Travel Podcast was produced and presented by me, Joe O'Connor. Editing and music by Paul Loughran. Thanks again to my guest, Tony Giles, for joining me, and thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more great guests in the weeks ahead, but in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to the Itchy Feet Travel Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take care, safe travels, even if it's only within a couple of kilometers, and chat soon.